Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after much political turmoil, the Assembly of First Nations may see change for the better. My first guest, Diane Francis, wrote a piece in the National Post about the AFN's quiet revolution, and she shares her findings. The January 6th committee hearings continue to heat up, and Brian Karam, CNN political commentator, keeps us up to date on what's going on south of the border. And the president of the Canadian Medical Association will join us after attending Canada's Premier's Healthcare Summit in B.C. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Later on the program, Brian Karam is going to join us. Uh, from Washington and talk about uh, the January 6th inquiry, uh, some revelations about that. And, and that's all important. It's all relevant news. We get that. But uh, it's not the only political news that we should be paying attention to. Uh, Diane Francis in the National Post writes a, a very important piece about what's happening with the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, some political turmoil and that maybe, maybe just took a, a turn for the better. Uh, the piece is called A First Nations Quiet Revolution Has Begun. And Diane Francis joins us to talk about this. Diane, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. Enjoy it. Uh, yep. You know, the essence of this seems to be, uh, as you mentioned, uh, some time ago, of course, uh, the Assembly of First Nations uh, elected Roseanne Archibald basically to shake things up and try to find what's going wrong here and fix it. And the executive of the committee found out she's really doing that, so they, they tried to get rid of her. Yeah, it's a, it's a dreadful story. I mean, it, it look, this is... <laughs> This is a woman taking on the old boys club because most of the chiefs of the First Nations in Canada are males and they like it that way. Excuse me. (coughs) Anyway, she's come along, uh, you know, and and very plucky. And she knows what a lot of people know. The dirty little secret about the Assembly of First Nations is that it's a arm's length government taxpayer funded organization that distributes money. And it's, it's, it's extremely controversial. And as one friend of mine who's a chief from Western Canada said, it's a swamp of corruption. And so that's all she's calling out. And you see what action the boys took against her. Fortunately, she took it to the General Assembly, in other words, of all chiefs in the country. And uh, they overturned the fact that she was she was suspended or basically fired. She's now in limbo and she needs help. And this is a woman taking on, you know, a, an enormous juggernaut of corruption that everybody has been complaining about for decades. But they've taken away her cell phone, her email address. I can't even get hold of her to do a follow-up article. And, you know, she's a, she's a woman of, of modest means and you know she's trying to do the right thing. So I think that this is a very important story that I'm going to be continuing to batter away at because, and I hope that the mainstream media picks up on it. But what we're talking about, Bill, is we're talking about an organization, the Assembly of First Nations, that's you know a couple of decades old, that is not accountable and not transparent, and receives nearly two billion dollars a year of our tax dollars. The Auditor General can't get in there. And so my next column is going to be asking the Auditor General to get in there to help her because she is, you know, right now she's the little girl in the house burning down and nobody's helping her. And she doesn't even have control of her operations. So I think that this is this is a, a not only an important milestone for someone to have had the guts to do this, but now 
Uh, I think it's, I, I certainly hope that more people realize that they've got to do something. And that includes the chiefs, the 140 chiefs who voted to reinstate her. It behooves them to get their act together and to help her. So that's the, that's the state of play right now. And it's pretty depressing. But, Diane, we've seen this play before, haven't we, in, in just about every political realm? Uh, I'm a reformer. I'm going to clean this up. Uh, you know, and, okay, get elected, but for God's sakes, don't really do it uh, because there are some things we just don't want uncovered here, and that seems to be the case here. Well, I think it's worse than that. And so, you know, I mean, you've got 632 chiefs. She was elected as the grand chief or the national chief a year ago. And then, you know, after she got in there and started to actually do things, then the little little tight-knit executive committee booted her out. And then she went before the General Assembly. Now, it wasn't 632 chiefs in attendance at the General Assembly. Not everybody goes to the General Assembly, but 140 of them voted to reinstate her. And so that, to me, shows that there's a critical mass of people that, look, Bottom line is, you know, the First Nations have to solve the First Nations problems themselves. But I'm saying that that's all well and good. You do what you have to do and you should get your act together because the, the money is the money you are, are spending is not going to the people it's intended for. But there is another player in here, and that's the taxpayer. And we're, we are supporting the Assembly of First Nations, the AFN, to the tune of nearly two billion bucks a year. And that's serious money. And they're not spending it wisely, according to her and according to 140 chiefs who wanted to go in there and muck around. So, you know, we've got to help these people, her and her supporters, by getting the federal government institutions, namely the Auditor General, if not the Prime Minister, but forget him, he won't even enforce the Financial Transparency Act that was imposed by, on the chiefs by Harper to publicly disclose how they spend all the other billions of dollars they get every year. But, you know, it should be the prime minister, it should be the auditor general, it should be the parliament. But that's, I'm glad you brought that up because it was one of the things that was an eye opener as I read the piece uh, the other day. <laughs> They've got the tool to do that right now. And it's that, it's that act. It's, it's the Fish Nations Financial Transparency Act. If, if they, if they use that, uh, does that compel uh, the other chiefs to actually, you know, show the books, which is basically what uh, Chief Archibald is asking. Well, she's not actually, she's asking for the first name. I mean, she's asking for the umbrella organization to show their books. Yeah. In other words, the, the, the First Nations themselves, uh, yes, I agree, they should be publishing all their financials for their band members to know where the money is going. This is the umbrella group on top of it. Think of it as a federal government over the provincial, over 632 provinces. The provinces have to get their act together, yes, and that act should be enforced. And by the way, the, the prime minister can just, with, a, with a, a, click of the, a click of a button or a pen, can make that happen, and that should happen and should have happened. Then secondly, you've got to have the Auditor General looking at this $1.8 billion a year that's flowing directly into the coffers of the AFN, AFN, which is the umbrella organization that have treated her this way and that have obviously skeletons in their closet. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But your point's well taken. I mean, they, they've reinstated her at the General Assembly and that's all well and good. Uh, but if, if, if she's had 
all the tools that she needs stripped away from her, like you say, even to the point of her cell phone, it, it behooves these people that wanted her back in that position uh, to force the executive to say back off and let her do her job. Well, that's what they are saying by reinstating her. However, uh, as some other people have pointed out to me, uh, you know, they can do lots of things. I mean, they can, they can, they've already tried to, they've already tried to stop her by saying she was a bully and in, in invoking the code of ethics and saying, you know, they're going to attack her in every way. She can't afford lawyers. She can't afford to do this. This woman is trying to do something good for her people and for Canada. And, you know, she's there all on her own. And so it really, uh, it, it really upsets me to think that's the case. But I've had several other Indigenous women and men leaders call me since the piece saying, you know, this is the state of play. It's awful. So she's isolated. She's on her own. And, you know, fortunately, there, it, it looks like there is going to be an audit. But she may be attacked separately, but there will be an audit. And that's a good start. And that's what the 140 chiefs voted for, to reinstate her so that she could supervise a proper audit of the AFN. And that is the beginning of, of what I think is important. It also is a reason for, for the uh, Auditor General to say, well, hey, the memberships have voted. Let me offer my services. I'll help too. And that's what we have to have happen because this is... Uh, this is terrible. I mean, people say, how can a country this rich have have uh, is unable to have clean water on reserves? Well, this is the reason why. The top assembly is corrupt. It looks like she's she's alleging they're not making sure the money is spent properly. And then beneath that, there's probably all kinds of other problems, which is why the the uh, Harper rule about financial transparency is absolutely critical. And 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 used and it's got to be enforced. I understand the, the situations like this and these allegations about corruption and where's the money going uh, have been going on well ever since uh, the beginning of the, well even long before the the, the, the AFN was was founded. Uh, it's going because the federal government's response traditionally has always been we're dumping money into this. I don't know why things aren't getting better. Uh, and and they just they're trying to deflect the blame in situations like that. But. It, as you mentioned in the peace diet, it's our taxpayers' money. Uh, we have a, I, I think, a, they have a responsibility to us, rather, uh, for transparency to say, here's where we're spending it uh, and make the determination as to whether or not it's effective. Where, where's the money going? You know, Absolutely. if you still can't get drink, I mean, there are drinking water advisories in some of these places going on for, for generations right now. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to throw around any comments that I, you know, that I can't prove. But here's an interesting connection. This woman's predecessor is best friends with our prime minister. Isn't that curious? Which begs the question, where's, this, where's the... Who's our, where, where's, where, our, where's our leadership and our supervision? Who's the custodian of your tax dollars and me? All they know how to do is, is increase taxes. They don't know how to look after them. And once it's out the door, they don't much care where it goes. That, that seems to be the attitude here. Especially if it's to a friend. How does somebody like Chief Archibald try to regain this now? I, I mean, you've written the piece, and, and clearly you've read some, you've received some response from this. So it's it's out there, and it's an issue that some people uh, are starting to pay attention to right now. Uh, we've, there's got to be 
you know, in summertime, we tend, as I say, at the beginning of the piece here, we're, we're looking at what's going on in Washington. We're looking at what's going on with the conservative leadership race. This is not on a lot of people's radar. But as soon as this boils over, as it does from time to time, uh, for instance, with her suspension or with some other story about abuse or situations like that, all of a sudden we're saying, yeah, we really have to do something about our First Nations. Uh, this is what they can be doing right now. And nobody seems to want to run with this. It is politically incorrect and very difficult. So that's why you need a champion like her and the 140 other chiefs saying, you know, getting together and saying, Ottawa, fix this. Now, here's the tricky part. I'm not sure a lot of those chiefs want to be disclosing their financials either under the Harper rules. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's really not, it's, it's an abrogation, I think, and it's not helpful for the federal government liberals to have just said, you know, self-government, do your own thing. It's not right, especially when our money is involved, A, you know, lack of accountability for tax dollars, and B, the charter rights of a woman like this woman. I mean, she was, she was, she was damaged. And this is going on throughout that First Nations community where, you know, chiefs are not being held accountable for overspending or not spending enough or, you know, goodness knows what. And, you know, band members are unable to even even um, have a means to a- attack what they think are fraudulent elections of chiefs in their bands or membership disqualifications for people that chiefs impose on people. I mean, there's a lot, this is a rat's nest that, you know, this is something that the federal government has neatly said, we don't want to have anything to do with it, but we'll finance it. And that's not, that's not tenable to me. No, because you need to follow the money. And, and it, again, this is typical. I mean, if you can't get rid of somebody who you feel is going to expose uh, some of the wrongdoing, you go after their character and you try to demean them in the public's eye. And, and that's what they have attempted to do with her. And, that's what and, they and, attempted to do with her. Her life has been hell. Mm-hmm. And it will continue to be. There'll be more lawsuits. There'll be bullying actions. There'll be code of ethics violations. Her life is going to be very difficult. She'll be probably driven out of that job. Uh, I hope not. And I hope the chiefs that supported her to be reinstated back her up and protect her. And I'm sure they will. But the point is that beyond that, and, you know, they got to get their act together. I agree self-government to a certain extent. But I think the fact that an organization has done that to a woman unfairly, unjustly, and has unexposed corruption and gets $1.8 billion a year of my money and yours is what is absolutely got to be remediated by, by, by the government, the federal government. You know, it's, it's interesting because in, in a parallel case, uh, you know, here, here are the premiers meeting, you know, in British Columbia and, and demanding more money for health care from the federal government. And the federal government's response is, well, you got to show us where you're going to spend it and where you have spent it. We need that accountability. And they're adamant about that. And, and, but with this situation, uh, which is maybe even more egregious, they just turned their backs on it. 
Well, I don't know if they turn their backs on it, but remember, they're they're not handing out blank checks, but they are handing out big checks. And you've got a whistleblower of credibility. And if that does not bring in federal government auditors and the auditor general into looking at how $1.8 billion is spent by that organization, then, then you know that there's corruption at the very top. So that's going to be the basis of my next column. And that is because people don't understand how it works. And, you know, healthcare to uh, Aboriginal, I mean, Indigenous people, all that stuff. I don't think anybody, I'm not talking about the $1.8 billion goes to a small organization. That's not the money going widespread to all the natives. This is just for one organization that is mostly populated by ex-civil servants to, to and, supervise the 632 First Nations who get money directly. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like their parliament. So, you know, that, that's, that to me is, is just, that's a problem. And, well, and, and, everybody, she- and everybody who kicked this woman off that, that job after she was voted in by the membership as a whole should lose their jobs, but there's nobody to fire them. There should be. Yeah. But the power structure that's set up, it's, it's the most elementary question really, Diane, isn't it? Uh, if you don't want a, a, an audit, what are you hiding? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid that an audit might find? Uh, and, and I think we de- we deserve an answer to that question. And, you know, thank goodness for this woman stuck her neck out, paid a price already, will continue to pay a price, but there's no going back now. There is going to be a third-party audit. So she's already started. She shot, she's, shot the, she's gotten off the first shot in the revolution, I think. And we have to help her. Well, I know you're going to stay on top of this, and we're certainly going to be talking about this, too, as this develops and, and as the audit certainly uh, moves along, too. Diane, a great piece. Uh, people can check it out on the financialpost.com webpage. Uh, it's just, it was posted up there a couple of days ago, but I believe it's still up there. It was last night, anyway. Uh, as always, thanks so much for this, Diane, and uh, we'll stay in touch. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to circle back to what's going on in uh, Washington, in the U.S. Capitol, with the uh, January 6th congressional hearings about what went on, who did what, who knew what, et cetera, et cetera. Some rather revealing uh, testimony over the last couple of days. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Brian J. Karam. Brian, of course, is a political commentator for CNN, columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat, and host of the podcast, called Just Asked Question. Brian, pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Bill, it's always a pleasure to be here, and yeah, doing pretty good. How about yourself? Excellent. Top of the world. I uh, want to circle back. I want to start with uh, your, your latest uh, podcast, Just Ask the Question, the one that you guys just did this past weekend, uh, with Michael Zeldin, of course, former prosecutor, and, and John Bennett, another uh, a great journalist who's been covering uh, Washington for many years. Uh, and, and it was a great conversation, by the way, Brian, as always. Love well, listening thanks. to the podcasts. Uh, but you guys talked a lot about what's going to happen at the other end of this. I mean, the, we'll, we'll get into the Steve Bannons and, and some of the other stuff in a couple of seconds here. But where is this going? Because as you as you guys mentioned during the podcast, uh, there is a time limitation here. I mean, you know, the, the Congress is going to break for summer and out of sight, out of mind. I mean, are charges going to happen? Now, I know these guys can't lay charges, 
But are you seeing and hearing enough? Or more importantly, is is Merritt Garland, the Attorney General, seeing and hearing anything here that charges could result in this? Well, we understand that they forwarded a lot of information to the DOJ and that Merritt Garland does have an active investigation. I mean, they already raided Jeffrey Clark's house and threw him out in his underwear into his front yard. So there, there was at least that visual. And then at the same time, they've... Uh, They've gone after, they're going after Eastman, Giuliani. I, I think all of these people have a lot to, to uh, answer for. And I think the DOJ, we won't know exactly what the DOJ is, is got under its sleeve until it pulls it out from under its sleeve. We do know that there's an active investigation because they had to go to a grand jury to get a, a search warrant for uh, Clark stuff and for Eastman's uh, photo um, stuff. So I, I'm sorry, phone stuff. So we do know that the phone records from Eastman, we do know Jeffrey Clark. So we do know there's an, an, an ongoing investigation. We do know there is a grand jury seated, but we don't know how far it's gone. We do know that at the end of the day, probably the most ominous thing that was said during the hearing yesterday was Liz Cheney at the end saying, we know that uh, President Trump, former President Trump had tried to reach out to uh, a, a witness that has yet to been called by the uh, January 6th commission and that they took, you know, all allegations of witness tampering seriously. So that's a, a shot across Trump's bow. And we know that at least on two other occasions, this has occurred. So it's marching in it. It's undeniably marching in a direction that Donald Trump doesn't want it to go in. And it's obvious that for the first time, probably in his whole life, Donald Trump is scared. Uh, and again, we look at some of the testimony that came out over the last couple of days. Uh, the one that jumps out at me, of course, was the big screaming match that apparently uh, occurred in, in the Oval Office. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was there. Mike Flynn was there. And, and as you mentioned in the podcast, essentially what they're telling Donald Trump was, uh, yeah, go ahead uh, with a military takeover, uh, you know, a, a, a coup, in other words, you know, send the army in to get the ballot boxes. And, and they were trying to convince Trump about this. I mean, it, it, it's bizarre, the sort of thing that went on there. Yeah, well, that was Giuliani, and they had to escort him off, and it was Sidney Powell and who uh, ruined diet uh, Dr. Pepper forever for me after her testimony yesterday. <laughs> um, but the, the bottom line is, is those two were leading the fight, and they got into, you know, they had a pass to come into the White House pretty much whenever they wanted. And so they went up there and this went on for a while and started in the Oval and ended up upstairs. And then then you've got, you know, people trying to talk sense to him, like Cipollone and, and others saying, no, you know, you can't do this. But he, you know, he wanted to do it and he was egged on to do it by others who said, you know, it was Giuliani who said, you know, he used a word I won't use here, but he called people who wouldn't back the president, you know, basically sissies. And so that's, you know, with a little different spelling with a P in it. So he um, he's those people were egging him on and he bought it. He liked it. He wanted to hear someone justify what he wanted to do. There was testimony from, you know, the screenshot of, of the tax message from uh, Cassidy uh, Hutchinson was just, you know, uh, about the white about the West Wing, you know, is unhinged. And that was capitalized. Well, that was every day. And I never knew the Donald Trump administration to be hinged by any stretch of the imagination. But on January 6th, I was there and I can tell you it was not a good day. And we we went inside. Members of the press went inside and said, "Hey, the president's got to come out and, and and make a statement, and you know, put these people, tell these people to go home." They never did. Meanwhile, we could hear some of the arguing downstairs in the in the press room. We knew there was something going on, 
We didn't know the extent of it. We do now. And then when it, Bill, when you look at, at the end of it, this was as close as the United States has ever come to crumbling into civil war since the civil war. And it was just frightening in, in its scope. And just by the thinnest, thinnest margin, were we able to retain our democracy, at least for the time being until the 2022 election anyway? It was just a couple of days ago. I, I watched uh, Seven Days in May on, on Turner Classics. I don't know if you stayed up that great late, movie. Brian, to see that. Yeah. Uh, it is a fabulous movie, and it was kind of great. I haven't seen it for a few years. But the similarities here were just incredible about the, the planning that went on behind the scenes uh, with people like Flynn and, and, and so many others. Uh, and, you know, you've got people like Roger Stone and, and Mike Flynn hiring, uh, you know, some of these right-wing agents like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers as bodyguards, we're told. And we know that there was a meeting the day before this with them. Uh, I, I guess the big question now is, was Trump at that meeting? Did he speak at that meeting? I mean, is there going to Well, it doesn't matter. Say- He's linked to this meeting. These are people that, I mean, the direct link was made to Donald Trump. They are this, uh, I, I'll say this, this, this committee has done a very good job of tying everything together. There are no loose ends. Donald Trump, you know, planned... The, planned it, enjoyed it, and and sat back and listened to it. I mean, there's the testimony inside the White House uh, that he had the door open to the Oval and he was listening to the, the crowd out there and getting off on the crowd screaming and chanting his name. If there isn't anything that's more indicative of the fact that this guy's, uh, you know, a, a loose nut, I don't know what is. I mean, he's he he is a seditious fool. He led, encouraged, planned, enjoyed listening to and watching the insurrection. And, and I liked how Jamie Raskin said Watergate was a Cub Scout meeting compared to the January 6th insurrection. Absolutely. And, and as you mentioned again in the podcast, uh, all of these people that are coming up here and, and with this damning evidence uh, and their recollections and, and oftentimes you know, stuff that's been uh, va- validated, they're Republicans. This is not a, a Democratic witch hunt. As a matter of fact, you know, it's a bipartisan commission, I mean, you know, with intelligent Republicans on it. Uh, a few, the, the few intelligent Republicans that are left. Yeah. And you can <laughs> see, like I said, I this is an attempt of from the Republicans, the ones that are left with any common sense to try and purge their party of the cancer of Donald Trump. That's and the, the Democrats are trying to help them. And so this is probably the most bipartisan effort I've seen in Congress in years. And despite Kevin McCarthy, not, it, it, the biggest mistake I've maintained that the Republicans made was, you know, not being involved in this. They should have put people on it more than the two that they had. The, the Democrats, you know, asked for volunteers, got two, and that was it. But the, the two that they've gotten are very uh, outspoken and very good at what they do. And Liz Cheney let me tell you something. She is not taking any prisoners. This woman is going for the throat and rightly so. Uh, hopefully it'll, it, you know, the, the most damning, most shocking thing that came out was about the Oath Keepers and the guy who was, you know, their press spokesman for a while saying, you know, look, these people are not about democracy. They're about violence. And, and you know, I got swept up in it and it's wrong. And bringing that out before the public and letting people see what seditious clowns the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys are is probably one of the most important things that could come out of this meeting, out of these hearings. Uh, the wordsmithing. Pardon? 
I was going to say the wordsmithing I find interesting. Uh, one of the people, yeah. St Stephen Ames, that uh, testified yesterday, who characterized himself as a nonviolent protester. Uh, when you storm the Capitol building and start running up the steps, and uh, you're part of the you, you Maybe you didn't swing a stick at, at somebody, but when you're there, you're part of the problem. You're, you're not just an observer. Well, if, if you're there as a peaceful protester and the protest turns violent, here's an idea. Leave. Yeah. You know, you, didn't, you don't have to wait for the president of the United States to come out and say, stand down. If I'm at a peaceful protest, I will leave if it turns violent, because that's not what I'm about. Besides which, most of these people that claim they were peaceful protesters were flat out lying. They were there with poles. They were there with guns. They were there with uh, we still don't know who who uh, put set the bombs, the, the pipe bombs along the Capitol. These people were not intent on being peaceful. They stormed the Capitol trying to take it back. And look, I was there when they when they erected the gallows for Mike Pence. They fully intended to use them. They were not there as symbols. They were there as functioning they were going to function. They wanted to find Mike Pence and they wanted to hang him. And they would have done the same to Nancy Pelosi or anyone else that they had gotten their hands on that they deemed were necessary to kill. These people were there was no peaceful intent. I watched these people. I, I could to this day. I have I felt I'll tell you the God's honest truth. Bill, I felt safer in in, in Ukraine during a war than I felt on the Capitol that day, because in a war, I know who the enemy is. I know where to look and I know that, you know, who's where it's safe, but there was no safe place that day. I didn't know who was going to come after me. I didn't know how violent it would get. It was the most unsettled I've ever been in 40 years as a reporter. It's frightening. And, and like I say, you, you've been around uh, to various places. What about Steve Bannon? Uh, the, the fact that he says he's uh, he's willing to come and testify right now. <laughs> uh, I, I... <laughs> testify to what? How not to shave and look like like a Wookiee? I, I don't know what the heck. Steve, you know, it, it's blue smoke and mirrors. You know, he's not going to come forward and testify to the truth because he's already he's already said that his whole goal, his whole life is he's a Leninist and he wants to tear the system down. He wants to show up live. And so he can stage a, a show and this committee. And look, I've known Jamie Raskin for years. I've known uh, 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 many other members of this committee for a long time. They're not going to they haven't let they've let very few people come out and do it live. They first of all, you have to be on tape and they're going to tape you. They're going to spend eight hours like they did with Cipollone. And they're going to tape you and they're going to interview you. And then they're going to play the excerpts of it. They're not going to give him a chance to stage a sideshow, which is what he wants. I doubt very seriously. And also, all he really wanted to do was try to get out of his court date on Monday. And that's not going to happen either. There isn't anything that Bannon can say that would help anyone else out unless he comes forward and says, you know, Donald Trump is a seditious clown and I helped him out. And if they get that on tape, they don't need him to say it live. Uh, so, so he's obviously there. He's he's the acolyte, obviously, in Trump's situation. Yeah. Uh, and and you're you're right. I mean, there's no way in hell they'd ever put this guy on live because I mean, I'm sure he's got a script. I wouldn't. He, it's it's he's he's going to try to pull a Jimmy Stewart, you know. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He's just going to hold up the whole hearing and try to, uh, you know, spend six hours talking about how wonderful Trump is and how these guys are all idiots. 
Uh, and if they so, had to pull him out of there, if they had to yank him out, you know, if he went on a diatribe and security had to pull him out, that be a, that would be a win for him. Yeah. It's a win-win situation. All he wants is attention. And to be honest with you, that's one of the downsides of the whole Proud Boy uh, Oath Keepers bit is they love this attention. They absolutely love it. Uh, but there's no other way to deal with it except to bring it out in the light of day and show them for who they are. How's this playing, Brian, down there? I mean, you know, we they've had a Depends couple of prime times. Are. I'm told there's going to be a prime time next week again, I guess. Uh, maybe the last public hearing, I guess, that's going to be televised for a while anyway. Uh, is, is are, are people talking about it outside of the Beltway? Yeah, people are talking about it outside of the Beltway. But the, the real tale of the tape is not what people say because, you know, look, 30%. We've always had in this country a, a 30 percent minority of morons. I mean, you know, it from the very beginning, you know, during the Revolutionary War, there were 30 to 35 percent of the people who didn't want to split from England. The Confederacy was made up of 30 to 35 percent of the people in the country. During World War One, 30 to 35 percent of the people didn't want to join. During World War II, 30 to 35 percent supported the Nazis. The lower end of the gene pool just keeps repopulating itself. You can't bother yourself with that. You've got to reach the people that you can reach. But more importantly, you have to shore up our institutions in this country. And if those institutions of democracy are secure, then the 30 or 35 percent can rant and rave. So the real tale of the tape is not public opinion, although that it is important. And maybe it, it light it, you know, enlightens some of the members of the press who didn't get it before. But the real tale of the tape is whether or not there are indictments. If there aren't indictments and come that come from this and the Republicans take back the Senate and the House, in uh, the fall, then this country, you can put a fork in it. It's done. And I'll be your neighbor in Hamilton somewhere. <laughs> I'll send you some real estate listings. Hopefully it won't come to that. I'm looking. Uh, and, and we should just remind people, by the way, there, this is not the only investigation. As you mentioned, Justice Department has, has an investigation. Uh, there's one going on in Georgia right now about irregularities, and, and a lot of the same you know, principles are involved in that. So yeah. uh, there's a long way to go on this. Uh, Listen for the podcast. Check it out. Uh, it's called Just Ask the Question uh, with Brian J. Karam. Brian, always a pleasure. Stay well, my friend, and we'll talk again soon. You too, brother. Be safe. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, the uh, Premier is wrapping up their meetings over the last couple of days. They've been in British Columbia and uh, talking about a number of different issues, including some of the stuff we mentioned on the program today, immigration uh, among those skilled trades. But uh, healthcare dominated the meeting, as you expect it would in situations like this. And, and the uh, the common thread, I guess, through this whole thing, unanimous opinion of all of the premiers and uh, territorial leaders that were there, is look, the federal government's going to have to step up when it comes to health care. They're just not paying enough money. Uh, they say about 22% of, uh, of every health care dollar comes from the feds. It should be at least 34, 35. And uh, on and on it goes. And the feds have fired back, by the way, and said, no, 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 we're doing more than enough. Look at these numbers. And they, they've come up with some numbers rolled out right now. So, Who's right? Who's wrong? And and you know, is this a discussion about numbers? Or is this about the efficacy of the system? Uh, to talk about all this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Catherine Smart. Uh, Dr. Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. You uh, you were attending the meetings. You you heard what the premier said to say over the last couple of days, uh, and. Uh, th- and then you've heard the federal response to this. What, what was your read on what you heard? And do, have we moved the yardsticks at all here, or are we just still qu- quibbling about, about numbers? 
Well, I think we're starting, the, I hope, the beginning of something different. You know, I, I think some of what we heard coming out of the Premier's yesterday was a little bit different in tone and, and, and than we've maybe seen before. And I think what, what we were hearing was a lot of talk about collaboration, acknowledgement that it's not only about dollars in the system, although that's part of their concern, of course, but it is about transforming and modernizing our healthcare system. And we were hearing from the premiers a desire to work with the federal government in that regard. And, and that really aligns with, with our view as well. We see healthcare as a shared responsibility. And I think we were hearing that somewhat from the premiers, which is a subtle shift in tone. You know, historically, it's really been the language has been a lot about this is our jurisdiction. We don't want you guys involved. Just give us the money. And yesterday, I think we were hearing more recognition about how bad things are in the healthcare system, about the crisis, about the need to deliver for Canadians, and the recognition, I think, from the premiers that they weren't necessarily going to be able to achieve that on their own. And they want to collaborate with each other. They want to see some pan-Canadian collaboration. We heard references to things like pan-Canadian workforce planning, the potential of pan-Canadian licensure, decreasing uh, barriers for workplace mobility. Those are new ideas that we haven't necessarily seen the premiers endorse before. And we heard a desire for them to see the federal government come to the table and map out a plan. So I think that needs to be part of what happens in addition to the conversation about the dollars. And I was grateful to hear the premiers acknowledging the need for both those things. And I know that was one of the requests, one of their asks, I guess, uh, was, look, we need to have a sit down here. Uh, because I know that, as we say, we talked about some of the things that they were concerned about. And, and, and Minister DeClaude has responded to that. Uh, but you've got to have everybody at the same table physically, I guess, at the same table to have a discussion about this uh, and get down to brass tacks about this. What about the element, though, that I think frustrated an awful lot of people, though, Doctor, is, uh, is the federal government said, look, it, it, you know, because the prime minister had made a commitment to more money to the system some months ago, is that uh, the premiers have to be more transparent. They have to show us where the money's going, what they're going to use it for. Uh, the pushback from the premier seemed to be, just give us the money. We know what we're doing with it. Yeah, no, I, and I, I think it's absolutely true. There needs to be more, more transparency. I mean, the reality is, here we are. If the healthcare system was being well-managed, we wouldn't be in this situation. So clearly, it, it, we don't want more of the same. And, and I think there is a real lack of accountability and transparency in the system. It's not an outcomes-driven system. So we need to revamp that. So I, I think, you know, both sides here have some points that are accurate. And and I think it's absolutely true that they need to sit down together. I mean, it is very frustrating. We've seen the federal government make many promises around health care, none of which have really actualized other than the $2 billion for, for surgical backlogs. So they do need to step up and come to the table and map out when they're saying they want accountability, which I think is very reasonable. Okay, well, what does that mean exactly? And what things are we going to prioritize? What things are we going to do? And let's make a roadmap, right? Let's talk short-term, medium, long-term. Where are the changes? Where are the dollars going to be invested? When we talk about transparency, what do we mean? What do we want to see? And let's actually get going here. But, you know, this kind of back and forth without sitting together, without laying out that roadmap, isn't going to get us any closer to the healthcare system that we need. And it's not going to get Canadians any closer to actually receiving healthcare, which is, of course, what they actually want. And I know that some people are going to say, well, look, this is healthcare we're talking about. You don't need a business plan. And I would tend to disagree with that. I think, there, as you mentioned, there has to be, first of all, a stated goal. Uh, you're not going to fix it tomorrow. So there have to be benchmarks along the way uh, to say, okay, we're making progress on this, but this still needs some work. I mean, you know, Minister DeClos talked about $3 billion for bilateral agreements for home care. 
Uh, talk to people that are, are looking for home care right now or people that are in there, and they'll tell you, look, the system's no better than it was five years ago. Uh, so has that money been well spent? Where's it been allocated? And, and you know, what programs are in place? I mean, that, that, that's got to be part of the discussion, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And that's the risk, right? And that's why you've heard us at the Canadian Medical Association talking about the need for more than just more money, because more dollars into something that doesn't work isn't going to suddenly make it work. And and that this is exactly the problem. You know, it, it is almost like a, a, a bucket with a bottom, empty bottom, you know, we're just pouring into it without seeing tangible improvements and tangible results. If anything, over the last 10 years, you know, what the data tells us is our system is only declining. It's not getting better. So we need to be really concerned about that because we do spend a lot of money on healthcare. Could we spend more and expand public healthcare? Absolutely. But if we don't actually know what we're doing, if we don't know the outcomes we're getting for those investments, and if we're not seeing tangible improvements in the system, then we're actually achieving nothing for Canadians. So we absolutely need to, to have accountability. We need to know what we're doing. And we need to actually see the system improving. And I'm also not convinced that just adding more money to the current systems is going to do that. Doctor, you've talked in the past about best practices. Uh, and, and as you said, you know, statistically, the story is there. We, we may not be comfortable with it, uh, but we're not the best healthcare system in the world. Haven't been for a long, long time. Uh, there are people that are doing it better than we do. Is there a move afoot by the politicians involved in this especially uh, to see who's doing it better? But, you know, the UK, Scandinavia, places like this that, that seem to have adopted different approaches to this that seem to be far more effective. Uh, can we learn from them? I think there's many lessons that we can take, both in what not to do and what to do. But again, you know, you've got to map out what the priorities are and decide what areas of the healthcare system you want to work on. Because, I mean, arguably the entire system could use a revamp, but you're not going to be able to realistically do that all at once. So I think if we were able to map out the priority areas, then we can start thinking about, okay, what's best practice in these areas? What are programs that are actually working? What do they look like? And and start modeling some of that. You know, I, I think one of our biggest problems in Canada is, is sort of the fantasy we have about what our healthcare system is. You know, I, I think we believe we have universal health care, but we don't actually have that. What we have is a universal insurance program that pays for doctors and hospitals. That's it. Nothing else. Um, and because we're so worried about the system becoming an Americanized system, I think when people try to bring up conversations about real tangible change in the system, it's often misinterpreted as saying we want to make an American system, and we therefore don't take the lessons from other European countries that are actually performing very well and doing better with their populations. You know, and again, some of the lessons to be taken from, from Europe is they don't only look at health in a silo. They, they don't look at it just as illness care. They look at what makes people healthy. Right? So they have better social programs, longer maternity leaves, better investment in children, more things to deal with poverty and quality of life and affordability. Those things are also key to health, and those things are going to give people a better life and require less utilization of the healthcare system. So we've also, as part of this, got to expand what we mean when we're talking about health. Well, and I know that's something we've talked about uh, on the program before. Uh, and I don't know if you can identify this, because politicians, obviously, when they're spending money, doctor, like to put things into into categories. You know, this goes in this folder, this goes into this one. But when you talk about, as you say, the determinants of good health, uh, we need to be proactive. Uh, you know, healthy eating, exercise. And now they may not look at that as healthcare dollars, but if we don't do those right, then there's going to be more of a demand to be reactive and deal with the people that that have they you know have fallen off off the wayside, and and that. That, I'm not hearing that as part of the discussion. Not from that end, anyway. No, I absolutely agree. 
you know, the is just look at the fact that one in seven children in Canada live in poverty. I mean, how is that still happening this day and age in our country? Poverty is the biggest social determinant of health. You know, if one in seven children in our country live in poverty, are underhoused, have poor nutrition, are, are dealing with all the trauma that comes from living in poverty, of course we're not going to have a healthy next generation. So we, we need to elevate this conversation. We need to really look at what we're doing, what we're trying to achieve, make those links between social determinants and health down the road, and then the spending in the system, and realize that so much illness comes from adversity in childhood, it comes from trauma, comes from poverty, and if we start getting at those issues, we're not going to need to be spending so much money downstream. So I think this is the problem when you think in silos, is you don't really come up with solutions that are holistic and see people as people, right? People are not an illness, they're a whole person, and we have to think about people like that. Uh I want to pivot, if I could, for just a second, because we I, actually we wanted to have you on the program last week, and uh, well, we all know what happened on Friday. Nobody was talking to anybody in the country yeah. on Friday uh, right. as a result. Uh, but an op-ed piece that you wrote about uh, some of the fear that's been caused by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade, uh, and and some concern and some speculation about well, how is that going to affect uh, what happens in this country? And and I think we'd be naive to suggest it's not going to have any any impact. Uh, but the, the op-ed piece I thought was very very cogent doctor because you talked about first of all where we are and why we're there and how we came very close to making abortion illegal in this country and it wasn't only just a few years ago we did that uh that and and i know some people are saying well this is a this is a a, 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 this is a legal issue. No, this is a moral issue. No, this is a, a religious issue. It's a health issue as you mentioned in the piece. That's right. No, absolutely. Abortion is healthcare. And again, it just comes back to that conversation we were just having about social determinants. Women need autonomy over their body and their healthcare decisions to be healthy and to have control over their economic futures and their lives. And abortion is part of that healthcare delivery that women need. So we absolutely need to frame it as that. That's what it's about. Um, and the issue right now in Canada, like with many other aspects of health, is don't have great access to abortion. So even though it should be available, and there's nothing at the moment preventing women from accessing that health care, that doesn't mean that all women are able to access it. And again, like many things, who do you think struggles the most to access it? It's people who are marginalized. And this is, again, why we need to be having these conversations. Are we making health care available to the people who need it? Yeah, and as you mentioned, the 1995 uh, Canada Health Act says that you know abortion services are medically necessary. But if, if there's no place to go, it's kind of a moot point, isn't it? Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and that's why we wanted to write the op-ed is I think sometimes it's very easy to, to sort of look down at the United States and, and think we're doing better than them or we're superior. But, you know, there's many things that when the rubber hits the road, it's actually not what people think it is. And, and access to abortion as healthcare is one of those challenges that we have. It, we have a long ways to go in making sure that it is truly universally accessible to women. And right now it's clearly not. And, and different, different approaches to this in different provinces. I mean, New Brunswick is, is pushing back just a little bit. Uh, as you say, the, the clinics that are open uh, oftentimes are in large urban areas. Well, that, not everybody is, is going has access to, to be able to do that. I mean, there's got to be a, a much broader approach to this, doesn't there? Oh, absolutely. And, and the great thing now with, with 
abortion care is we have better options, right? We now have a, an abortion pill that women can take if they know that they're pregnant early on. That can that's something that could be easily scaled into communities. You know, can be prescribed by doctors, midwives, nurses, pharmacists. That's a really tangible way to increase access very easily. So we need to be looking at things like that, making sure that we're providing the education to providers that these things are easily accessible so that we can make it seamless for women. Um, and, and this is, is why we need to be talking about these issues is so that we can be sure that we're actually doing that work to make sure that women have options and choices and, and access to the health care that they're entitled to. Do we need the federal government to step in? Do we need to, them to enshrine this in, in legislation? Uh, there are pieces of legislation that impact this. Are, are they enough if we just enforce those and ask the provinces uh, to enforce them? I think we need to keep abortion centered as health care because as long as it is centered as health care, it means that it's not sort of at the mercy of political whims, right? So when you make something a law, then of course that can be changed. And we don't have laws about other aspects of healthcare, right? We don't have a law about whether you can have a vasectomy or whether you can have your knee replaced. So I think here, really, what we need to focus on is the tenets of the Canada Health Act around access. And this falls under access to care, just like we're having challenges with all sorts of other access to care issues. And, and I think it needs to be part of the conversation between the federal and provincial government as part of that broader conversation about access to care as, hey, again, where are we actually at with this? You know, what are, what are the actual facts and what do we need to do tangibly to make sure that women have access to this very needed medical procedure? Uh, very tumultuous times, especially with, with federal and provincial responsibilities here, and of course uh, uh, with uh, the, the, the abortion uh, situation as well. A very timely op-ed piece. It was in the Globe and Mail just a couple of days ago. If people want to uh, Google that and check it out. Uh, doctor, as always, thank you so much. I know uh, how busy it is for you these days, and I really appreciate you taking some time for us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.